It's good to be here with you today. It's good to see so many old friends and former classmates and teachers, mentors, colleagues. But I have to admit that it is a bit intimidating being here today and seeing all of those familiar faces of people who could tell some pretty good stories about you. I will be giving out bribes after the service today. But in all seriousness, it is great to be here today. It's great to be home. I want to thank Pastor Stewart, as well as the Alumni Association, for giving me the opportunity to preach here today. Join me for a quick word of prayer. Father in heaven, for the next few minutes as we open up your word, we just want to invite your spirit to be here in this place. Stir our hearts and our minds, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. He was a hard man of the sea. The saying, swear like a sailor, was especially true of him. He'd seen a lot of horrifying sights in his day. He'd done a lot of horrifying deeds himself. Just ask the people below the deck. John was a godless man. A man who had often mocked God and those who put their faith in him. Even his friends, the few that he had, would never have called him a good person. He was a man who made a living selling people. Shipping slaves from the west coast of Africa to destinations on the other side of the world. In a trade where morals were decidedly lacking, he was considered the worst of the worst, even by his godless shipmates. But he was the captain of the ship, and his business was successful, just count the people below the deck. The captain had gone to sleep a few hours earlier. Everything had appeared to be on schedule, and so he'd left his first mate in charge. Before retiring to the captain's quarters, he'd noted the change of pressure in the air. A storm was brewing, but that wasn't all that unusual for men of the sea. John had been through dozens of storms in his life. You didn't reach his status in this business if you couldn't handle a few storms. Not that he, minded, not that he enjoyed storms, mind you, there was an element of unpredictability to the sea that you never got used to, no matter how hard you tried. He drifted off to sleep without much trouble. It was a deep sleep, an easy sleep in the comfort of his own cabin. It was a far cry from the conditions of the people below the deck. Suddenly, he awoke to the sound of men shouting. And just as he was starting to open his eyes, suddenly the impact of an enormous wave crashing down on the ship was felt. A second later, water burst into his cabin. What kind of wave was this? Get to the pumps, someone was shouting from out on deck. So John staggered to his feet. He slogged through the water to the deck outside. The situation was bad. 
The men were trying to desperately pump the water from the ship, but they were failing at the moment. And so without even hesitating, John bolted to a pumping station and began pumping for all of his worth. What felt like hours passed by, but it seemed like they weren't making any progress. Wave after wave after wave kept crashing down on the ship, and it seemed like each one took more and more vitality out of the sailing vessel. For the first time in his life, John feared that he was about to die. Too exhausted to pump any longer, he fastened himself to the wheel of the ship to try to steer the vessel through the storm. He was soaked to the bone, and it was bitterly cold. What a way to go. And as John shivered there, clinging to the wheel, his mind began to flash back over all the events in his life that had led him to that moment. He'd been raised a Christian, but he'd long since walked away from his faith. This must be God's judgment on him. His sins had finally caught up with him. There could be no turning back now. And so he waited impatiently to receive his doom. But just then, he heard the sound of one of the men cry out that the ship was free of water. A glimmer of hope. The storm continued to rage on outside, but the pumps were starting to win the battle with the waves. They had made it through the immediate crisis. For the first time in his adult life, John suddenly felt compelled to read a Bible. And so he snatched an opportunity in one of the calmer moments of the storm, and he returned to his cabin, and he opened up the Word of God. With renewed interest, he poured over the story of Jesus. And over the course of the next few days, through the power inherent in this word, John's life was completely transformed. It would never be the same again. Reflecting on the experience years later, John wrote these words. I began to pray. To think of that Jesus that I had so often derided, I recollected his death, a death for sins not his own, but as I remembered, for those who should put their trust in him. On March 21, 1747, John Newton realized his need for a savior, and he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. It was a day he would never forget, and because of the song God put in his heart, we can never forget it either. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. The grace that John Newton discovered on that stormy night at sea eventually led him to sympathize with the people below the deck. 
He went from being the master of those below the deck to becoming the servant of those below the deck. He embarked on a new and controversial career as an outspoken abolitionist. The music of grace had completely transformed his life. You know, the reason why John Newton's song resonates with so many of us from all around the world is because at the bottom of all, we all know that our deepest need, our most primal need, is to be saved. And this is true of all humanity. In Islam, men and women seek salvation by reforming back to the one true religion that worships Allah. In Eastern religions, hundreds of millions of people try to experience salvation by escaping from this illusionary world to becoming one with the cosmos. Even secularism has its own vision for salvation, that one day scientific and technological breakthroughs will usher in a golden age of peace and prosperity. The bottom line is that all human beings are aware, at least on some level, of their need of salvation. We all know the darkness far too well. We all long for resurrection of some kind. But friends, the Bible teaches us that humanity's greatest need is God's greatest gift. And this is seen nowhere more clearly than in the Apostle Paul's famous declaration in Ephesians 2, verse 8, a statement that is no less musical than Newton's famous hymn. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. You see, Paul also knew something about amazing grace. He'd experienced it for himself, not on the deck of a ship, but on the road to Damascus. He learned firsthand that when a person is confronted with the unconditional love that God has for sinful human beings, there is a response to grace that brings up a song from somewhere deep down within your being. Grace does that. Grace takes a life that was broken, a life that was lost, a life that was longing for resurrection, and it turns it into a beautiful song that glorifies the Savior. You know, when I think about Spencerville Academy, as well as this larger, wider Spencerville congregation, the legacy of music is always one of the first things that comes to mind. And we've been blessed by some of that music here today. Music is powerful. Music can very often convey the good news about Jesus far more effectively than any sermon or preacher. And the impact of the music of this school and this congregation has literally been felt in places all over the world. There's something about this Lord of ours, friends, that causes us to play music. There's something about the grace that we experience in Jesus that causes us to go tell the world and do it singing. And so today on this homecoming Sabbath, I want to invite you to come home to the music of grace. Grace. 
We're looking at three stories today. Four if you count John Newton, but three stories from Scripture that powerfully demonstrate the music of grace. And just as with the differences that occur in the stories of all of our lives, they go by different names. And so I want to tell you today about a chorus, a solo, and an anthem. First, a chorus. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, and verses 13 to 16. Luke chapter 24 and verses 13 to 16. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. The day was drawing to an end. The sun was sliding down the late Sunday afternoon sky, and the hearts of the two former disciples of Jesus were sinking with it. For Cleopas and his friend, it had been the worst three days of either of their lives. Their teacher was dead, crucified on a Roman cross by Pharisaic hatred and jealousy. It's always hard to handle the grief of watching someone you love die, but this death was especially painful. Not only was Jesus of Nazareth someone whom they had loved dearly, but he was supposed to be the Messiah. He was supposed to be the one who would redeem Israel. He was supposed to be the one who would change the trajectory of this nothing kingdom back into the goal that God intended for it. But it was now the third day since their teacher had died, and the faith that had once burned so vigorously within their hearts was fading rapidly. It was a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. The text doesn't tell us why these two disciples were heading that way, but it was a fitting direction for their journey. They were traveling away from Jerusalem, away from Jesus, just like they had done three days earlier. You see, not only were these men feeling like the hope of their faith had been shattered, but they were also dealing with the guilt of having turned their backs on their one-time teacher and friend. When the soldiers had shown up to arrest Jesus on that Thursday night, they had fled with the other disciples. They had hidden. They had saved their own lives and they had left Jesus to face the horrors of the cross all alone. Was that the last image Jesus had of them before he died? The sight of their backs running off into the night? Did Jesus forgive them before he died on that cross? These were the thoughts that were racing through their minds. 
The guilt was a tangible weight on their shoulders as they journeyed away from Jerusalem toward the two-bit town of Emmaus. It was there that Jesus saw them. He couldn't leave them alone in their guilt and heartache. He couldn't leave them alone in their pain. And he took time on the very day of his resurrection to minister to two second-string disciples because the truth of the matter is there's no such thing as second-string disciples. In Jesus' eyes, it makes no difference whether your name is Peter or Cleopas. He loves you, he cares about you, and he will always be there to minister to your heart in those moments when you need him the most. As Luke tells it, Jesus approaches these two men and he asks them what they are discussing, but they do not recognize him. With great sadness in their voices, they ask Jesus if he's been living under a rock for the past three days. They explain that their teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was supposed to be the Messiah, was dead. But they don't stop there. They tell him about the reports from some of the women in the group that Jesus had risen from the dead. They even throw in the detail that some of their own fellow disciples had run to the garden tomb to see the empty grave. But of course, it was all impossible. There was no way that Jesus could possibly be alive. That didn't happen. That just didn't resonate with reality. I mean, if Jesus had truly risen from the dead, there would be all manner of implications for their lives. At the very least, they wouldn't be leaving Jerusalem for Emmaus. Like Cleopas and his companion, many Christians today also fail to grasp the amazing implications of a risen Savior. We often are capable of emphasizing the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross but then often pay very little attention to the fact that Jesus is a risen Savior. The poet Anne Weems has put it aptly, and she describes the attitude that many Christians have to the resurrection in these words. She writes, We're babe believers who resist the resurrection. We're Christmas Christians who are very good at celebrating Christ's birth. We can cling to the babe. We're even crucifixion Christians, agonizing, sympathizing, relating to the hero of the cross. We can rock a baby. We can weep for a dead man. But what can we do with a 33-year-old who won't let the story end? Cleopas and the other unnamed disciple were trying to rationalize their faith, something that I'm sure some of us have done at times in our own lives too. Jesus was dead, irretrievably dead, and so clearly he couldn't have been the Messiah. And so in describing who Jesus had been, the two disciples describe him as being a prophet, a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. 
It was the next best thing to a Messiah. Somehow describing Jesus as a prophet was the only thing that could make sense in light of what had happened. And while it's tempting for us to criticize these two sad men for their faulty theology, for coming to doubt that Jesus was the Messiah and limiting his identity to a prophet, in fairness, we should give credit where credit is due. These men still had faith. Others might have been tempted to abandon their faith in God altogether. They could have easily have just written Jesus off as a lunatic or a deceiver with whom they had wasted nearly three years of their lives. But they didn't. They had walked with Jesus. They had seen his miracles. They had heard his teachings. And most importantly, they still loved him. Even in death, they loved him. So yes, their theology may have been a bit misguided, but their hearts were still in the right place, as fragile as their faith was. And you see, ultimately, Jesus doesn't care about perfect theology nearly as much as he cares about your heart. Jesus doesn't care nearly as much about whether you can list all 28 fundamental beliefs or explain every aspect of Daniel 8 nearly as much as he cares about your heart. He can teach you theology along the way. He's got eternity after all to fix anything that might need fixing. But what Jesus really needs right now is your heart. Jesus sees these two men struggling with their faith and longing to understand what had happened. And so Jesus gives them the world's first Bible study about the Messiah, about himself. He shows them from the Old Testament that all of these things, the arrest, the abandonment, the trial, the beatings, the cross, the tomb, and yes, the resurrection, they all had to happen exactly as they had occurred. The two men are amazed, and they urge him to stay with them, to eat with them, to hold on to this bearer of good news and Jesus agrees. And as they are breaking bread together, suddenly their eyes are opened and they realize that they've been walking with Jesus the whole time. That's how faith works sometimes. Life doesn't always make sense. We go through periods of our lives when we're in the dark. But then... Every now and then, we get these moments of stunning clarity where we realize the magnitude of what Jesus has done to save us, and our hearts are moved by the music of grace. And though there are no musical notes recorded in the text of this story, if you listen closely, you can almost hear the melody of their chorus. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? 
Oh yes, my heart is burning, it burns with holy flame, and now my life is focused on the glory of His name. That's what grace does. Grace revives, grace resurrects, grace breathes new life into our existence. And when we walk with Jesus, when we study his word, we experience that sweet chorus in our own lives too. It's the chorus of Emmaus, and it's the music of grace. First a chorus, now a solo. John chapter 20, verses 24 and 25. John chapter 20, verses 24 and 25. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Thomas was no fool. The other disciples might be fools, but not him. First, it had been the women. They had burst into the room where all of them were staying, shouting hysterically that Jesus had risen from the dead. It was clear that the emotions and lack of proper sleep over the past three days was finally getting the better of them. And yes, Peter and John had run to the tomb to see it for themselves, due diligence and all. And yes, it was even true that the body, the body of Jesus was missing, but that didn't really prove anything as far as Thomas was concerned. I mean, the Pharisees and Romans had hated him after all. Who knows how far their hatred might have gone? Come to think of it, not even Peter and John had been convinced by the empty tomb. In fact, everyone, everyone except those few women were finally starting to come to grips with the reality that their beloved Jesus was dead. Dead and not coming back. But then the rest of the men had gone crazy too. Thomas had gone out to run some errands, and when he came back, he came back to an entirely different group of people than when he'd left. They were having a party. They were shouting and singing, Hallelujah! Tears of joy were flowing down their faces. Eyes were alive with the look of something big and grand and glorious. They were practically tripping over themselves to try to be the first to tell him that Jesus was alive and that the risen Jesus had appeared to them in that very room. In the grieving tunnels of his heart... Thomas was deeply concerned, to say the least. Men, men like him, were supposed to be stronger than this after all. I mean, maybe the women could believe those emotional tales of make-believe and wouldn't it be nice, but men weren't supposed to succumb to fantasies and fairy tales that couldn't be true. Thomas made a note to himself. 
Clearly, he had overestimated the mental health of the brethren as well. But he had to admit, it was a compelling story. It wasn't as though Thomas wanted the story to be false. He loved Jesus too. It's just that the hard realities of life had taught him otherwise. But then... One week later, Jesus appeared to Thomas. And when Jesus entered that room and appeared to Thomas, everything, absolutely everything changed. It always does. Whenever someone truly encounters the risen Jesus, whenever someone is confronted with the inescapable reality that the Jesus of history is not dead and dignified, but alive and in our faces, it is impossible to remain the same. Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. Jesus looks at Thomas, doubting Thomas, as we like to call him. Jesus looks right into Thomas's soul and he says, put your finger in the holes in my hands inside. Do not doubt, believe. And you know, it's, it's easy for us to vilify Thomas in this story. It's easy for us to criticize him for what we call his lack of faith. But the truth of the matter is, Thomas was no different from any of the other disciples. They hadn't believed that Jesus was alive when the women first told them either. It was only after Jesus appeared to them. And so the story of Thomas actually teaches us a very important lesson about following Jesus. There can be no such thing as a second-hand disciple. Ultimately, no one else can persuade you to believe in the reality of a risen Savior. Either you've met the resurrected Lord, either He's rising every day in your life with healing, with power in His wings, either He's living within you as the source and center of all your joy and all your comfort and all your peace and all your strength, or else you are closing the book on the story of Jesus and going back to whatever you used to be before. But friends, there is a day when doubt disappears. It's that morning, it's this morning, when Jesus, the Jesus who refuses to stay dead, breaks into your life to make you confront the reality that He wants to be your risen Savior. Jesus is looking at you right now, friend. He's looking at you and he's saying, here I am, do not doubt, believe. He's inviting you to come into his presence and examine all that he is for yourself. And when we do, when we come into his presence, like Thomas, our hearts will stir with a simple yet melodious solo, Jesus You are my Lord and my God. He is Lord. 
He is Lord. He has risen from the dead and He is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. First a chorus, then a solo, now an anthem. This is the music of grace. John chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. John chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. It's a story that starts in darkness, in the wee hours of the morning. Mary Magdalene was heading to the garden, to the tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea. She had the saddest of errands to anoint the body of her Lord. It was a task that she'd done before, only a few weeks earlier, in fact, but the circumstances then had been far happier. She had taken costly perfume, unbelievably costly perfume, and she had poured it out on Jesus' feet. She had used her hair to wipe his feet. Jesus' disciples hadn't understood. They almost never understood, it seemed. They had thought it all was just a waste of nearly 300 denarii, nearly a year's worth of wages. But what did they know? Jesus hadn't cast out seven demons, count them seven demons out of them, but that's exactly what Jesus had done for her. Jesus had publicly affirmed the value of her gift when no one else would. Jesus had valued her when no one else would stand up for her. He had told his disciples to leave her alone. He'd insisted that she'd done a good thing, a beautiful thing. Jesus had said that she'd bought it for the day of his burial, and now Mary was doing just that. But when Mary came to the tomb in the darkness, there was no Lord for her to anoint with perfume. She was absolutely inconsolable, unimaginably distraught. Who would do this? Where would they take him? She ran back to the other disciples to tell them the troubling news. And in the fog of that confusing morning, Peter and John had been to the tomb, but it didn't seem to change very much at all. Was she the only one who cared that his body was missing? Frustrated and determined, she returned to the garden once again. And there in the grayness of the first light, there in the dewy grass and shadows, Mary broke down in tears. Where could he be? 
Who could have taken him? But as she went back to look into the tomb, John tells us that she suddenly became aware of the presence of others. She saw two angels sitting there in the tomb where the body of Jesus had laid. Why are you weeping? They ask. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Why are you weeping? said another voice back from further outside the echo chamber of the tomb. It was the same question, but a different voice. Why are you weeping? Mary turned around and saw a man she assumed must be the gardener. And on one level, she was right. He was the original gardener, the one who had walked with Adam and Eve in the cool times of the day. But in her tears among her sobs, she didn't yet recognize him. Please, tell me where you've laid him, Mary asks this mystery gardener. And then the one who always goes seeking, even seeking the sinful in the coolness of the garden, Jesus rocks her world, unsettles her grief, and somehow comforts her with simply one word, her own name. Mary, he says. Mary. By simply saying her name, Jesus said it all. The same voice that had once driven out the evil spirits that had ruled her life was once again bringing her out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. At the sound of her name on Jesus' lips, Mary went from being completely distraught to being the happiest person in the entire world. You see, friends, when Jesus looks at us, he sees everything. He sees all of our hopes and our dreams. He sees all of our pain and our fears. He sees us in the midst of our own personal darkness, in our career dead ends and family dysfunction or our hidden sins. And he calls each of us by name to come up out of the darkness into new life and resurrection with him. That's what happened to Mary, and I pray that you experience it for yourself today. And when Jesus finally tore himself away from the woman who had no intention of ever letting him go again, Mary raced back to the upper room to tell the others what she had seen. She bursts in through the door, and she proudly trumpets the new anthem of her life. From that day forward, it would be the anthem of her existence, the song that never ends. I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. I've just seen Jesus. I tell you, He's alive. I've just seen Jesus, our precious Lord, alive. It's the anthem of Mary. It's the anthem of all of us who've experienced the power of the risen Christ in our lives. And it's always and inevitably the music of grace. You know, in 2012, I had the opportunity 
to travel to the Bible lands. It was a trip of a lifetime in many ways, not the least of which is that it's where I met the woman who's now my wife. And I was privileged to see so many amazing places during that four-week trip. I got to see the mighty pyramids of Egypt. I got to climb Mount Sinai at daybreak, stand where Paul stood on Mars Hill, ride a boat on the Sea of Galilee, even wade in the Jordan River. But you know, of all the places that I went and of all the amazing experiences that I had, One place stands out among all the others, the garden tomb. You know, Jerusalem really is quite touristy now. There's signs up all over the city telling you that this is the very spot where Jesus told this parable or healed that person or did that miracle. And seeing all of the businesses that have been quite successful based off of these claims was a bit discouraging for me. And truth be told, I was growing more than a little bit skeptical. But then at the end of the day, we went to the garden tomb. Unlike the rest of Jerusalem, it's just a quiet garden in the middle of the city. No outside tour guides allowed, just Christian volunteers. And I'll never forget the old Scottish man who spoke to our group. He took us over to a quiet part of the garden, and he sat us down, and he started telling us about Jesus. He explained that there was no way to know for certain that this really was Jesus' tomb, though it certainly was possible. But ultimately, he said, it didn't matter. And what he said next, I will never forget for as long as I live. He motioned behind him in the direction of the tomb, and in a thick Scottish accent, he said to us, you can go now and see the tomb if you want, but let me tell you right now, you're wasting your time. He's not there. He's here, and he's there, and he's everywhere, because Jesus is alive. That's the music of grace, friends, that we serve a risen Savior who's in the world today. He's present and he's active every day in your life and mine. Perhaps Jesus hasn't been in your life lately. Perhaps you feel like you've been far from Jesus, like you haven't been experiencing that music of grace in your life. And if that's you, friend, if you're the one for whom the music has died or grown distinctly dim, I'm here today to tell you that Jesus has risen from the dead and he's knocking on the door of your heart right now, offering you new life and resurrection today. He's inviting you to come back home to the music of grace. He wants to put a new song in your life, a song that is happier and greater and far more joyful than any song that you've heard before. It's the chorus of Emmaus. It's the solo of Thomas. It's the anthem of Mary. And it's amazing grace.